1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 42. The title of this message is Loyal Love. I want to remind you that we are now entering into the kind of third section in David's life. It can be divided up into four different segments. The first part in 1 Samuel 16 through 17 is David is this shepherd. Anywhere from 10 to 15 years old, he was out tending his father's sheep, and then he also comes to the battlefield and defeats Goliath. Then in chapters 18 and 19, we see David as a servant. So David is this servant helping Saul out, going to fight battles for him and different things like that. But now we are entering into David the exile. That means he's no longer welcomed at his home country. He's actually a castaway. And because of Saul being jealous of him and not wanting to kind of share the throne or the glory, he says, hey, I'm going to kill you, basically. And so Saul got jealous of David and hunted him down through three spears at him. And so I want to remind you just from last week in chapter 19, and how the Lord protected David over and over. In verse 1, Saul actually told Jonathan and all of his servants, I want Saul dead. He's like, I want him killed, which is a pretty heavy thing. And so Jonathan convinces his dad not to kill David. He comes back, fights a couple more battles. But then the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul again. And David was playing the harp. And the third time, Saul throws a spear at him. He dodges it and runs for his life. He goes home to his wife. He goes, dude, your dad's trying to kill me because he married Saul's daughter. And she goes, dude, he's going to kill you if you don't get out of here tonight. So they literally let him down through the window and he escapes. And Saul's mad at his daughter because he helped uh, the enemy, basically. And then David ran to Samuel in this one location. And to protect David, the Lord protected him in three or actually four different divine ways. Saul sent three different troops of soldiers to hunt him down. And then, during that time, the troops were coming and approaching. The Spirit of God overpowered them, and they started to prophesy and speak forth God's word. That happened three times, and so Saul was fed up with it. He goes, fine, I'll do this job myself. And he goes down, and on his way, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he started to prophesy. In verse 24 of the last chapter, it says... And he also stripped off of his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner, lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, that's some strange stuff. Wouldn't you guys agree? To me, I'm like scratching my head like, what is going on? God is basically protecting David. But now, since Saul all night and all day was doing this, it gave David a chance to run and escape. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Then David fled from uh, Nerath in Remach and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said, By no means. You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. 
But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So here, we're looking at this type of loyal love between two friends, Jonathan and David. This friendship was orchestrated by God. God brought these two men together to bond with each other, to help each other out. And I know as junior high students, friendships are very important. And I would say in life, period, no matter what stage you are in, elementary, junior high, high school, college, even adults, all of us need friendships. They are essential to life. Without friends, life is boring. (laughs) They make it so much more enjoyable. That's why God never wants us to be alone. But the thing is, we have to be friendly at times. And sometimes we get nervous to talk to a stranger. But I love the best advice I got from a fortune cookie one time. All friendships start out as strangers. All friendships start out as strangers, with the exception of one, unless you've grown up together and your parents were friends. That's how you became friends. It's funny because first service, a guy sat in for first service, and his name is Doran. He was a stranger to me two years ago. Me and him went to one conference, and I saw this guy. I actually met him in the guy's restroom, and we hit it off. Like, we were like, dude, and we just started talking, and then I was like, where are you from? And he's like, from Sacramento, and they drove six hours down to this conference and, like, got there at 4 a.m. in the morning, and I just started asking questions. He's involved in youth ministry, and it was cool because there was just this connection, and all week the Lord was putting him on my heart a year and a half ago. And so he was able to be here for the worship conference this weekend. And he goes, hey, can I come in and sit into your message? I was like, absolutely. And it's funny that we're talking about friendships and how my friendship with Doran started. We were strangers. And yet we've kept in contact. We've called each other. This is a type of loyal love. One Bible said, loyal love is one of life's most precious qualities is the most selfless part of love. To be loyal, you cannot live only for yourself. Loyal people only stand by their commitments, and they are willing to suffer for them. And this is a type of loyal love. How loyal are you to your friends that you are willing to stick with them and suffer with them or for them? But more importantly than being loyal to your friends, how loyal are you to God? How committed are you to the Lord? Because loyalty is a very big aspect of friendship, but first and foremost to God. Not to your friend, not to your group of friends. Are you loyal to the Lord? Jonathan and David both put God above their friendship. They put God above their family. And that's what we ought to do because that is our priority, our number one relationship that affects all other relationships is our relationship with the Lord. Notice in verse one, David flees to Jonathan's house and he shares with Jonathan in his heart. He goes, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What's my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David had become an enemy and he can't understand it in Saul's eyes. 
David loved Saul and helped him out over and over. And in fact, David only did good towards Saul and faithfully served him. But now Saul is throwing spears at him, putting a hit out on his life, trying to kill him. And, Jonathan, or, and David goes running to Jonathan's house seeking comfort and counsel. You can almost hear the pain in David's voice as he's asking these questions and he's frustrated. He's seeking answers. He's trying to figure things out. Have you ever been there before? Where you're seeking out the answers and trying to figure things out? If you really want to see how David feels, look at the Psalms. Look at this. Psalm 55 verses 4 and 5. He says, my heart is severely pained within me. And the tortures of death have fallen on me. Fearfulness and trembling have come up, and horror has overwhelmed me. That's pretty gruesome. This is a man who is considered a man after God's own heart, and yet he's fearful. His heart is in pain. But if you actually scroll down in that passage in verses four, uh, 12 through 14, he says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could deal with that. If a foe rised up against me, I could hide. Easy. But it's, it is not with you. A man like your, my, myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. See, David is expressing, he goes, this is not just an enemy. In, in David's eyes, Saul was not his enemy. In David's eyes, Saul was a close friend. They went to the house of worship together. They talked about the Lord together. David refreshed Saul over and over with his musical abilities. And he's perplexed. David knew what was taking place, but he didn't know why. He knew Saul was trying to kill him, but he didn't understand the reasons behind that. Many of us seek after understanding. We try to figure things out on our own. We try to discover the reasons why things are happening in our life. I believe every single one of us are like that. We try to figure it out. And we ask the Lord, God, why would you allow this to happen? Lord, why would you allow my family member to pass away? God, why would you allow my family to get a divorce? And I'm stuck in the middle of it. It's hard because I took a friend mountain biking yesterday, and he was asking me how junior high is going and stuff. And just the topic of divorce came up. And I, I know some of you guys are going, your families are going through divorces. And he could relate because he is... Um, experienced that himself, where his family went through a divorce, and he was stuck in the middle of it. And he's like, dude, that just feels like it's literally it's growing in the church from people who claim to be Christians, who love God, and yet they're not willing to stick it out and allow these things to separate and allow Satan in and bring division. And some of us are wondering why. Maybe you're thinking, is it my fault? Is it my fault my parents are getting a divorce? Is it my fault these things are happening? The Lord doesn't always promise understanding. And that's frustrating. Because many times we want it. 
but we aren't going to get it always. Here's a very comforting quote I've often shared at funerals to family members who have lost a loved one, and it brings me comfort. Warren Wiersbe, he said, Christians do not live on explanations, but on the promises of God. We often want to know the reasons why God is allowing something or doing something, but that's asking for an explanation from God. We aren't called to live off of explanations, but the promises of God. See, the promises of God are a sure foundation where we can build our lives upon. The promises of God are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled in Jesus. And when God says he will do something, God's not a liar. He will fulfill his promises towards us in his word. Often, the Lord doesn't tell us what we want to know, only what we need to know. And you might feel like, well, I need to understand. I need to know what's going on. I need to know the reasons why. Do you think you need to know? Because if you actually need to know, God will tell you. But only if he thinks you need to. If you don't need to know, he is sovereign. He sees all the possibilities. He sees the future. He sees the past. He knows every ounce of information you need to know. And if he chooses to hide something from your eyes, that's his call. He loves you, and he says, my love is sufficient. You don't need understanding all the time. Here's a very powerful scripture that I'll never forget. Uh, you guys remember COVID, right? <laughs> you guys remember being locked down in your houses? Oh, that was brutal, right? So when there was the lockdown going on, all the staff ministers would still come to the church on Sunday morning, and pastor would be here, and Marie, and we would talk in the parking lot. Sometimes people would bring coffee, and we would just fellowship and hang out. Some people would actually drive through, and we would pray with them and different things like that. So many people started driving through one time, we started having church service underground. <laughs> like, we were not supposed to, but we started, like, there were so many people one time, the pastor was like, hey, let's open up the chapel. Let's have a worship service. Jared busted out his guitar, and we started singing. He did a Bible study, and I want to say the first time he did a Bible study during COVID, when we weren't supposed to. <laughs> but the thing is, you better obey God more than man. He shared this powerful verse. John 13, 7. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. You know why this verse is so comforting to me? In this moment, Peter, Jesus actually puts a towel on and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, guys, they wore sandals back then. They stepped in horse stuff, cow manure, all of that. Washing someone's feet was a servant's job. And nobody did it yet. So what does Jesus do? He puts up on a towel. He gets some water and goes to each disciple, even Judas, who he knew would betray him, and washes their feet. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, you can't do that. I know who you are. You are the Christ. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, dude, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He goes, all right, give me a bath. And Jesus is like, no, you don't need a bath. You're not understanding. And even Jesus says, Peter, what I'm doing right now, you don't understand, but later on you will. So listen, this is a promise I think that applies to us. 
because you and I will not understand in the moment, but it could be weeks later, it could be months later, it can be years later, or when we get to heaven and we stand before God and He maybe shows us our life and we be like, God, I see your wisdom. I see your knowledge. I'm sorry for questioning. And we will understand then. But we will understand. The, the only thing is, is when, how long. So in verse 2, Jonathan says, absolutely not. My dad is not trying to hunt you down. If anything, he's going to tell me and I'll tell you. See, Jonathan remains unconvinced that there's real danger for David. It's very possible that Jonathan was not aware of Saul's recent attempts on David's life. After all, in verse 6 of chapter 19, Saul swore, as the Lord lives, I will not kill David. So maybe that's what Jonathan's still thinking about. In verse 3, David says, dude, your dad's trying to kill me. Jonathan, you're naive. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. He's thrown three spears at me. He put a hit out on my life. Your dad's trying to kill me. And he's going to hide this from you because he knows we are friends. He says, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. I would, under, I would if you have your own Bible, underline that last phrase in verse 3. There is a, but a step between me and death. This is true for David and it is true for you and I. You and I are a step away from death. Maybe you've had a close encounter with death and you had to call 911. See, life is fragile. We're here for a moment and gone the next. And I'm not sure if many of us can relate to David here. And the future seems bleak. It seems dark. And you, the death is on the horizon, basically. And I think only a couple of you guys can relate in this room. I think of Isaiah who had cancer and beat it. I think of Gabe who had CF and his sister died from CF. And he wasn't promised to live past 18. Maybe you can relate. See, because when we're young, we think we're invincible. As a junior higher, maybe death doesn't, you don't think about it that often. You're just living your life. But if you are scared of death and you're constantly thinking about it, you need to get right with Jesus because no one's promised tomorrow. David said there's a step between me and death. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 14, For whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, with it being September and it getting colder outside, um, there's a seat over here, dude. Um, it's getting cold outside, and so when you wake up, you're able to see your breath in the morning sometimes, right? I actually love the cold weather. And so the idea of our life span is as short as your breath. You breathe and go, and instantly it's gone. That's how short your life is and my life is. It's here for a moment and then disappears. You and I are a step away from death. Now, my question to all of us is, how will this truth affect our lives? 
What are some reasons we need to know this? And how will it affect us living here and now? What do you guys think? Knowing that any of us can die at any moment, how does this truth affect us or should affect us? I think it should help us to live each and every day to the fullest, right? We shouldn't live in fear because the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. God, fear involves torment, and God does not want us to be tormented. He wants to be com comfort us with his love and his uh, peace. But it should cause us to be thankful. I'm not sure if this reality has really sunk in even for me, even though I have had many people die in my life. One of my best friends in junior high, his name was Paul Roberts. Uh, Paul Roberts, me and him, we did a lot together. And we went to Catalina together on his dad's boat. I was able to drive his dad's boat. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. Um, because there's no lanes. Like cars, like you have lanes and you can't swerve with a boat. You're like, yeah. And you have the whole entire ocean. And his dad would go, I think, lobster fishing at night. Um, I have many good memories with Paul. But it was our, uh, in high school, we kind of parted ways. But it was either our set Freshman year or sophomore year, he was skateboarding and gets hit by a car and dies. The next day, his family were supposed to go to Hawaii. I say that because I don't want you guys to think you are indestructible. I don't know when you are going to be called to heaven. God knows that day. For me, it could be tomorrow. It could be a month from now. I have no idea. And I'm not concerned about it. Why? Because if I'm here, I'm called to do the Lord's work. And there's something that the Lord wants me to fulfill. And if you are here, that means you have a job to do that the Lord wants you to fulfill. Same thing with David. God says, you are going to be the next king of Israel. That was the job David was going to fulfill. But he didn't see it. There was so much fog and uncertainty and fear blocking the path towards the throne. He is overwhelmed. We need to do what the psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse 12. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If you want to be wise, it's knowing how many days you have left and that Jesus can come back at any moment. We could possibly die tomorrow or Tomorrow, the Lord can come back for his church and call us all home. That would be amazing, right? Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul says, I'd rather be with Jesus than with you guys. Sorry. Because <laughs> he's so much more glorious. But right now, it's more necessary for me to be here. And if you are alive, you still have a purpose. The Lord wants to use you. In verse 4, Jonathan said to David, what, Whatever you desire, yourself desire, I will do it for you. See, Jonathan is a true friend and wanted to be there for David. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How are your friendships? To what depth and level do they go to? I've been so blessed this week to hang out with a lot of people I genuinely care for. Um, Monday night, I met with a guy named Joel Edwards. We got dinner together 
Um, on Friday, me and my friend Burn from Reno Valley, we got, we got all-you-can-eat sushi. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I love sushi. Anybody else love sushi? It's so good. Um, and then got to hang out with my friend Doran as well. And I'm just so blessed by the people that God has placed in my life. And Jonathan's the type of friend I want to be, who is there for his friend, willing to do whatever for him. So, look at verses six or verses five through seven. Verse five says, And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, uh, David earnestly asked permission of me that I might run over to Bethlehem in the city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. So the new moon was they had this kind of religious feast once a month, according to Numbers 10.10, 10, where they would gather around for a sacrificial meal, celebrate, and David's presence was important because he was not only the son-in-law to the king, but also a commander in the army, and Saul would expect him to be there. And so David creates a plan and tells Jonathan about the plan to reveal how Saul feels towards David. In verse 8, he says, therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there's any iniquity in me, kill me yourself. Or why should I, or why should you bring me to your father? David reminds Jonathan of their previous pact to be best friends. Um, if you look at chapter 18, verse 3, it says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his very own soul. Saul loved Jonathan as his own soul, so they made a covenant together. But here's something I want to point out. You might not see it in the English, but the Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And this Hebrew word, deal kindly, means hashad, or however you pronounce it. I really don't know, guys. But it literally means loyalty, joint obligation, faithfulness, goodness, graciousness, godly action, and kindness. Why is this word important? Because it's mentioned 250 times in the Bible, in the Hebrew language. And you might be thinking, like, why does that matter? It's also mentioned in verses 14 and 15. It is important because it carries a bigger idea than just these qualities. It carries the idea of love, compassion, and affection with additional connotation of loyalty, reliability, and faithfulness. It's not merely just love. It's loyal love. It's not merely just kindness. It is dependable kindness. It's not merely just affection. It's affection that has committed itself. And this is all rooted in the character of God. Because when God chose to reveal himself in Exodus 20 or 34 verse 6, it says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That word in goodness is the same exact Hebrew word. It's this idea of loyal love, this love that is committed to helping out somebody else. And this is God's character, guys. 
Sometimes we envision when we sin, when we mess up, that God is on the throne and is, there's steam coming out of his ears and he's red and angry. The Lord God who is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in loyal love. This characteristic that held Jonathan's friendship together with David, God was at the center. Is God at the center of your friendships? Do you guys, are you guys friends because the Lord is at the center? Are you guys Christians? Or are they just kind of, you're friends with them because you have a good time with them? There was this loyal love between them. In verses uh, 9 and 10, it says, And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I would not, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what is your father's answer? Answers you roughly. Now in verses 11 through 23, Jonathan is speaking here. Um, in verse 11, if you guys would follow along with me. And it says, Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out to the field. Now, so they're under the stars at night. And Jonathan says in verse 12 to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded my sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, indeed, there is good towards David. And I do not send it to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send it away. And you shall, and you may go in safety. The Lord be between you as he, sorry, the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In verses 14 and 15, this is where I kind of want to focus in again. Verse 14, it says, And you shall not only show me kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from thy house forever. Interesting here. See, Jonathan says, All right, I'll test my father, and I'll let you know the outcome immediately as soon as I know but Jonathan makes it clear that David is the next appointed king. At the end of verse 15, he says, uh, When the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, he goes, God's hand's upon your life. Your enemies won't be able to stand against you because the Lord is on your side. But David would remain loyal to Jonathan because of this commitment here. See, John, David promises to keep his commitment and have this type of loyal love towards Jonathan, not only Jonathan, but towards his family. This word kindness is that same Hebrew word in these two verses. But you see, I want to fast forward. You guys can't see it here, but there's a beautiful story later on in 2 Samuel when David actually is become, has become king and he sits on the throne. And he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Now, David said, is there still anyone who is left of the household of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He remembers his covenant years later. And he says, I'm going to be, continue to remain loyal and loving towards Jonathan and my word. And see, there's this story. What actually happens, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> this happens is Saul commits suicide and falls on his own sword. Jonathan dies in battle. Word gets reported back to the, the kingdom, and Jonathan has a baby boy. 
who's about four years old. And so the servant at the house freaks out and decides to hide him because she knew that he was going to die if somebody else came in. And so she's running to a safe spot. And as she's running, she trips and falls and breaks the child's legs. The child, the, the legs of the child break and he becomes crippled. And he grows up many years later. And see, the story in this chapter here, in chapter 9, is a picture of God's grace in us. This boy, his name was Mophibosheth. Not only do you have broken legs, but your name's also Mephibosheth. Like, that's, that's rough, man. I'm just kidding. Um, but we'll call him Mob for short. I don't know. But Mob, he did, nothing to, he did nothing to deserve the kindness from the king. He didn't say, hey, look at me. I've done a bunch of good things. He was crippled. And guess what? Each and every one of us are crippled in this room because of sin. You and I did not deserve God's affection his loyal love, or his kindness. He has sought you out like David sought Mob out. And as God sought him out and brought him to his table, he says, I'm adopting you into my family. He goes, you will have a permanent seat at my table for the rest of my life and beyond. And see, that's the cool thing because that's what God's promised us. He promised you and I a seat at his table for all of eternity where our shame is covered. Because as Mophibosheth sat at the table, the cloth dripped over his legs, hiding his shame. And that's the thing, God wants to hide your shame and your things that define you as being weak. And this is the type of loyal love that God has towards you and I. In verse 17, it says, Jonathan, again, caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This covenant was not just a simple agreement, but it was much deeper than that. This promise was based on a deep, genuine love that they shared towards one another as brothers, as friends. This was a pure type of friendship love. Guys, I need to drive this home. The world has taken this word love and distorted it and made it highly sexual. Love does not have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be romantic. You can love another brother in the Lord without having these romantic feelings involved or a sister in the Lord. And sometimes there's this deep bond between guys that hopefully one day you young men will experience that I have experienced and have been the benefit of. And you ladies can also experience that with other ladies. This is not a homosexual love because the world will tell you that. The LGBTQ community will enforce their agenda on the text and tweak the text, but you can't tweak the text. That's what Satan does. This word here, they had this love without romantic feelings involved, and they had this deep bond for one another. Now I'm going to summarize the rest of this stuff here. In verses 18 through 23, Jonathan makes it clear that in three days he's going to bring a word to David about what Saul's intentions are. And to secretly communicate, I know some of you have secretly communicated with your friends, and you maybe have a code that your parents don't know about. David and Jonathan had their own code. Even though Jonathan's like 40 and David's like probably 20-something, 
they actually didn't have cell phones to hide. They didn't have any way to communicate. So what do they do? He says, if I shoot three arrows off to this side of the rock and say this one thing, things are good. But if I shoot three arrows really far off to this side of the rock, things are bad. And so that was how he was going to communicate. In verses 24 through 26, the feast comes. Paul, uh, Saul sits at the wall, at the head of the table, basically. Abner, his general, sits beside him. Jonathan takes his seat. But there's an empty seat at the table that's open. That's David's. And Saul notices it, but he assumes that David is unclean and he can't participate. The second day rolls around of the feast, and this is where the fireworks begin. This is when things get to heat up. And Saul asks Jonathan, where's David at? And Jonathan says, oh, he, he asked for permission. Basically, Jonathan lies to his dad <laughs> and says, hey, he asked for permission to go to this, uh, his house and because they have a yearly feast there. And Saul gets angry. It's very interesting, guys. You might think you're very smart in lying to your parents, but your parents are smarter than you guys. They know when you're lying to them. And Saul knew when his own son, Jonathan, Jonathan, his son, Jonathan, that's a, that's a good one. When his son, Jonathan, lied to him and he gets angry. Look at verse 30, guys. It says in verse 30, then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Whoa. Right? When you read, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, many of us think of cussing. And that's actually what Saul is doing here. He is cussing. He's using profanity. And I want you to know, this is at a religious service. The king should be celebrating God's provision as a nation, but Saul is swearing here, revealing his own wicked hearts. And that's what swearing does. That's what cussing does. It reveals the condition of that person's heart. Maybe you have a problem with your mouth, and you at church are one way, and at home is another way, but then at school, you're a completely different way, and you cuss. But if your parents would find out that you get beaten, you get disciplined, Cussing just reveals your heart. What goes in is going to come out. It says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Saul is revealing his wicked heart here. If you struggle with cussing, guys, there's hope. Because the Lord can change and transform you from the inside out. I was actually even listening to Pastor David teach this text. And he said that he had the mouth of a sailor when he was growing up. He actually invented cuss words. <laughs> he fused them together. And his own teachers said to him, David, there's no one that has a more foul mouth than you. That's Pastor David. But guess what? He's been changed and transformed by the grace of God. And you would never even expect that. Because that's what God can do when you surrender and let God in. If you want to change the way you speak, it starts by surrendering to the Lord. In verse 31, it says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. The NLT actually puts it better, I think. He says, As long as the son of Jesse is alive, you will never be king. Kill him. Basically. 
Saul's motives and David's motives were different. Saul wanted to preserve the throne and keep what he was going to lose, that God told him he was going to lose. Jonathan was willing to give it up for his friend. If you actually go to chapter 23, verse 17, look at what it says here. It says, Jonathan goes to comfort David another time. He says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall stand or be next to you. Even my father knows that. Dude, Jonathan was so confident. He's like, dude, you're going to be the next king, and I'm going to be right next to you, supporting you, because I see God's hand upon your life. This is what Jonathan wanted. See, Jonathan actually was in line with God. He wanted God's will for the nation of Israel and for his own life. And God's will was that Jonathan would not take the throne, even though he was next in line for the throne. That's powerful. Then in verses 32, actually, for, sorry, look at verse 33. Then Jonathan cast a spear at him. Sorry, then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. His own father tried to throw a spear at him. Wow. Talk about Jonathan needs some counseling, right? <laughs> he needs some therapy. But guess what? Jonathan's not bothered by this. He's not bothered that his dad threw a spear at him. What bothers him, look at verse 34. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and ate, he ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. He was more concerned about his friend David than himself. And that's what caused him to get upset. I love that. He wasn't concerned about me, myself, and I. He was more concerned about his friend David. That's what true loyal love is like. Concerned about your friends. Willing to weep with them when they weep. To rejoice with them when they rejoice. And then in 35 through 40, they go, David, Jonathan flees. He goes out to the field with his uh, servants, this lad. He shoots the arrows really far and says, hey, they're off to that side, which meant basically you're in danger, David. And he goes, all right, hurry, get the arrows and go back. The lad leaves unaware of what's taking place. David comes out of hiding. And it says in verse 41, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south and fell on his face on the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. He's really broken because he realizes that Saul wants him dead now. Jonathan and David are weeping here with broken hearts because they don't know what the future is going to look like. They might not ever see each other again. Maybe you've said goodbye to a friend one time, and it was hard because they're moving out of state. You and I got so many privileges here. We can call them, we can text them, we can email them, we can FaceTime them. They had none of that. They're broken. And it says they kissed one another. Now please do not read into the text that they were making out. Okay, it doesn't say that. <laughs> People might put that on the text. It does not say that. There was no sexual or romantic feelings behind this kiss, or it might have been a kiss on the cheek. We don't know. But actually in different cultures, People have show affection differently. Maybe you and your family, you guys give everyone kisses. Not everyone's family is like that. Sometimes certain families, no one gives anybody kisses. Except for mom and dad, and that's it. 
And you're thinking like, yeah, I would find it weird if my siblings kiss me. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> Each family shows affection differently. When I was in Peru in 2010, we were warned at the church, before the church service started, the pastor warned us, he goes, hey, just to let you know, Peruvians are very friendly, and when the ladies come to the church service, they'll kiss you on the cheek. Sometimes they'll kiss you on the lips. And we're like, what? <laughs> and so it happened. You would greet somebody, and they would kiss you on both cheeks. And it was part of their culture. It was a sign of affection without it being weird. And sometimes we make things weird. And this was not weird here. In Jewish culture, this was a deep sign of affection towards one another. And it says they wept together. They were broken. They were hurt. They weren't going to see each other again. In verse 42, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since you have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. Have you guys ever felt alone before? Like there was nobody there with you? That's David right now. He was all alone. He left into the wilderness and had nothing. Jonathan went back to the city. They didn't know where their friendship would be. How many of you guys have ever had crutches before? Anybody have crutches before? You broke your leg or something? One, two? I've never had crutches. Um, my older brother broke my arm when I was one, but I don't really count that. <laughs> I don't even remember that. But there was one time we were in Guatemala, and there was this one kid that was sitting there, and he had a cast on his foot, but he had crutches. And he was smaller, and so I grabbed his crutches and started using them. But I'm like six feet tall, so I had to like crouch down like this. And so I was walking around like a dinosaur, like, Argh! and I was like, go, like chasing after kids, and they were screaming like, ah, and they were like dying laughing. We had a great time. There's a picture. I'll show it to you guys later. Um, but I was crawling around like that. And the thing about crutches is they hold your weight because you're, you're, you're unstable. You're only on one foot. God was removing all the crutches from David's life family's gone. And now his friendship's gone. He has nothing to rely on, nothing to lean on. Therefore, the only thing he can fall on is the grace of God and God himself. God wants to remove obstacles from your life that are crutches to make you dependent upon him. So many of us are clinging to things that the Lord says, I don't want you to cling to that. I want you to rely on me. And that's what God had to do with David to pull this out of his life, pull this out of his life, because he was forming him into the man of God. And sometimes to be formed into the man of God, you have to be crushed before you can be blessed. You gotta be broken before you can be blessed. And that's what David was going through. Jonathan and David were both loyal to each other because they were first loyal to God. But I wanna point out something here, guys. There's one greater than Jonathan and there's one greater than David. And his name is Jesus. His loyal love is far greater than any man or woman. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord abounding in goodness, abounding in loyal love, abounding in this compassion, abounding in kindness. He has this kindness towards you and I. It's bound up in the new covenant, in his blood that he shed upon the cross for you. It's proof that he goes, I am committed to you. Ephesians chapter, or, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, when he starts a work in you, he's going to finish that. 
God doesn't start works that he doesn't finish. He finishes everything he starts. So if he started a work with you, he's faithful to you, and he's going to complete that. Here's a verse I really cherish and hold dear. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That means when you sin, when you mess up, when you fall short, when you say the wrong thing, when you hurt somebody, God is faithful to forgive, faithful to cleanse, and he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to be like, oh, I'm done with you, junior hires. You said a bad word again. (laughs) He's not going to do that. He's committed. He's deeply committed to us. His affection is bound in a commitment towards us. His kindness is dependable towards us. And you can rely on his loyal love. But the question is, are you showing that loyal love towards others and being that type of friend that Jonathan was to David? I pray that I am. I pray that you are. And that we would let God increase and that we would decrease.